This week we are in Saratoga Springs for the World Fantasy Convention with very special guests Pamela Sargent and Susie McKee-Charnas. Susie is the Hugo, Nebula and Tiptree Award winning author of the classic Holdfast Chronicles, Dorothea Dreams, the Sorcery Hall series and more. Pam is the Nebula, Locus and Pilgrim Award winning author of The Shore of Women, the Venus and Seed trilogies and the editor of the classic Women of Wonder anthologies. And welcome to both of you uh, and thanks for being with us. Uh, this is uh, Susie and I have known each other for ever. But I don't think Pam we've never met before earlier today. Um, but I wanted to second exactly what Jonathan said earlier, that those were formative books for me. And the, the Women of Wonder books keep coming back. Yes. Uh, everybody keeps rediscovering them. People sort of want to redo them, it seems, uh, in, in various ways. That, that idea keeps floating around, and I have finally reached the point where I, I'm beginning to think that what's happening now, which is you have various anthologies coming out, whether it's Octavius Brood, mm-hmm. or whether it's um, the Vandermeer, um, the Vandermeer the Sisters collection, of the Revolution, the Sisters of the Revolution, that there are so, the, the, the field has become so diverse and so much more, mm-hmm. even with genres and subgenres of all kinds. I almost think that you have to have a lot of people doing those kinds of books now. To do one comprehensive Women of Wonder anthology would be really hard, really expensive. It would requ- probably require a book about the, about a thousand pages long at least, mm-hmm. and there would still probably be a few subgenres that would be left out, or would be neglected, or would get overlooked. Not to mention Latin American women writers, oh, European yeah, or Asian into, writers. And when you get into the international, mm-hmm. when you get into different cultures, when you get into all the different kinds of people, which is which is good. The thing is, it makes it impossible, I think, to do something that comprehensive now. It makes it much, much harder. Well, is that a good sign? Does that mean we've won? I it, mean, no, we're not well, Isn't it the, a risk of it being the opposite, though? I mean, I look at it and I kind of think, okay, 1970s, you start doing the Women of Wonder books, right? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, there's to summarize a lost history of women writing science fiction in the 20th century, yeah. which is a, a, a wonderful thing to do. Right now, and it's a number of years later, 40 years later, we have uh, Chris, Dean Catherine Rush doing a women in science fiction project with Bain and yes. online. Mm. We have the Vandermeers doing Sisters of the Revolution. You, you mentioned Octavius Brood. Why do we need to do it again? I mean, I mean, sh- didn't, we, didn't didn't you tell everybody? Well, <laughs> because, because no battle is ever completely won. You have to keep fighting them over and over and over. When I when I was young and naive, doing the first Women of Wonder, I didn't know that. I'm glad I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought this will settle it. This will settle this stuff. <laughs> There's no like, settling this stuff, as I we mean, can see in our. I was so yeah. I really. I mean, the funny thing about that book is I didn't know what I was doing. Nice. And everybody was and everybody was turning it down. I was I, I was in my early twenties. I was in grad uh-huh. school still when I when I when I first came up with the idea. And I thought, well, when I finally sold it to Vintage, which was another accident, and that was because Bond and McIntyre called me up and said, "Hey, you know, Vintage mm-hmm. is, is 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 called her up because she had complained about an anthology they had done that was entirely men." Mm-hmm. And she said, why weren't there any a science fiction anthology? It was their first venture into science fiction, and they had brought her an anthology with stories that were, all, all of which were by male writers. Vonda complained to them. They said, well, why don't you do one about with, with women? Mm-hmm. She knew that I had been trying to market mine, and she called me up and told me this. Huh. 
Now, this has a happy ending because Vonda told, she had an anthology she was working on, feminist anthology, Aurora Beyond mm-hmm. Equality, and she sold that about, oh, I think a couple of months after Women of Wonder sold the vintage. So she sold her book to Fawcett, I sold my book to Vintage, and the fact that it went to Vintage, I think, just by chance, and because they were not a science fiction right. publisher per se, and most of what they were doing was modern fiction of various kinds of reprints of, you know, pretty well-known writers. Because of that, I think it reached people it otherwise might not have. And people who thought, oh, you mean, there, there's, there are women who do science fiction. And that was, so, so there was, it was almost a coincidence, but when I was finally editing the thing, then I felt the pressure because I said, if I screw this up, everybody who said, well, women don't well, do yeah. science fiction, or <clears throat> it's trouble. this, or it's that, or it's really not any good, or there aren't enough good stories to fill up a book, they would have all been on my ass. <laughs> it was it was a much smaller world though. It, it, it was in a much, so many yes. ways. Mm-hmm. Our world. Yes, well, yeah, was well, it was tiny. Well, it was like the 1970s. Uh, feminist science fiction is just being born, really. Wow, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, Joanna Ross's you know, Female Man is only about four hours old, but it comes around time to write. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, Left Hand of Darkness had only come out in 1968. Yeah. 68, and yes. that, that set off a whole bunch of people who yeah. said, oh, she did it. Well, I guess I could try. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. me, among mm-hmm. others. Yeah. And so, um, but when we all kind of came together, it wasn't that many people. I mean, we no. all knew each other. Everybody yeah. knew each other. Yeah, and if you and didn't know them personally, totally you knew the name. Yeah. Right. But but now, the, the part of the problems now is, it's not a problem, is that there are so many women, as you said, mm-hmm. that it's no longer a subset of science fiction writers. I mean, you can't talk about science fiction writers without talking about, well, I mean, you can, but... Essentially, if you look at things like Nebula and Hugo Ballots, if you look at yeah. the, the, the only two people have ever won four Hugos for best novel. One is Heinlein, the other one is Lois Bujold. Um, and I think there's also a historical, uh, element that comes in when you start looking back at, good example, um, since this is 2015, because I just realized this, uh, I've known for a long time, and Jonathan and I have talked about this, is the centennial of, of Alice Sheldon, James Tiptree Jr. It's also the centennial of Lee Brackett, ah, which is really about, interesting yeah. because everybody thinks of Lee Brackett as a 40s and 50s writer and of mm-hmm. Tiptree as a 70s and 80s writer, and yet they were born at the same time. And somebody told me this morning that Miriam Allen DeFord had published a story before World War One or something. Uh, so, so there's still a lot of excavation to be done, and there's still a lot of kind of celebration of these older writers. But that's more like a historical. Uh, well, yeah, that is. Yes, that is trying to summarize this enormous thing that we're right. all part of now, which has mm-hmm. become hugely successful. Yeah. And there are new young people coming in, which we were worried about not long ago. Remember, we'd look around at oh, conventions yeah. and say, "Everybody's gray. Oh my yeah. God, where are the kids? Well, they're here, <laughs> and they're. I mean, they're still." A lot of transition going on, but it means that the field is in such flux and it's so complicated, and it keeps hiving off these sub. But when you go to a convention like, let's say, Wiscon, which yeah. has a lot of younger feminist scholars, do they know the older work? Not always. That's a no. good question because one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm, so, I'm not the only one, Eleanor Arneson has noticed it, and mm-hmm. a lot of people have noticed it, is that there seems to be this amnesia that's set in, as if a whole group of writers has sort of disappeared. And suddenly you have the, these things coming out, you know, just in the past couple of years. Science fiction is becoming more diverse. Science fiction <laughs> right. actually has women coming in. I'm like, hello? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's some of that actually uh, a mechanical thing. 
in yeah. that... I mean, there's two things I think I think that are at play. One is mechanical and one is cultural. The mechanical one is they killed the mid-list. And a lot of, oh, this, yeah. a lot of the, mm-hmm. the careers that, in terms of sales that continued on, were mid-list careers. So the reason that these people, that younger people today are kind of going, well, this must all be entirely new, mm-hmm. is because... Those books aren't readily available in the world. That's true. And, I mean, if you go into a Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. should you do such a crazy thing in 2015, or any other bookstore, the mm-hmm. odds that you would find anybody's books who are mid-list from the 80s or 90s, it's pretty minimal. Most of the stuff is quite recent. Yes. So, so there's that institutional thing. Oh yeah, I, 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 that's definitely had an effect. And I mean, you could the only way you could probably find. I mean, the thing is, it's it's actually easier now to find. The old works than it used to be. If you want to go searching online, you can find them, but you have to know what they are. You have to already be aware of. Well, them. yeah, exactly. You can't stumble you're, across. You're not going to stumble across something and say, "Well, this looks like an interesting book." Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got to be looking for it. But the other thing is, old people become invisible. Yes, well, that's you know, true, and especially I mean, yeah. old women become invisible, yeah. which is and, and it's, so. So I think that may be another reason that this generation seems to have just, except for the you know the the. The really top people, I say, in our soul, went, hmm. you know, was not going to disappear. Everybody else just sort of dropped yeah. out of sight. Well, it's like, I think it's enormously encouraging that in the last five years, a generation of people have decided mm-hmm. that Russ and Tiptree are canonical, major, and almost kind of religious figures, almost, mm-hmm. you know, the way they're regarded. Russ is, has a great deal of mm-hmm. sort of that aura around her. But it hasn't yet really spread out to no. the rest of the history of women in science fiction, or feminist science fiction. And I'm sort of curious, when you're both young women attracted to writing science fiction, was it deliberately feminist science fiction for you, or was it science fiction? It was feminist science fiction for me, at least by the time I'd finished my first book, because it did not start out to be feminist science fiction. Mm -hmm. It started out to be an adventure story. And when I realized that there Everybody in the story, all the major characters, each had a part in their own voice and their own point of mm-hmm. view, except for the woman who was on the adventure. Ah. That opened my eyes. Because somebody asked me that in a consciousness racing session. Oh, okay. really? I was talking with people about this book, and they were asking me questions. And they said, well, and, and when does she get to speak? And I, I went, well, <laughs> she didn't. And at that point, I had to go back and rewrite the whole thing. And that was the beginning, actually, of me not just participating in feminist activities, but actually looking for that focus in my own work. Because I had to look for it. Yeah. When I wrote, hmm. wrote Motherlines, when I started to write that book, and I realized it was all going to be women, because mm-hmm. the guys would walk into a scene and the scene would flop over dead like a fish, so they weren't going to be there. Hmm. Um, I, th- I thought, where am I going to find, how am I going to be able to distinguish these women from each other in this story? Uh-huh. <laughs> because, I, you know, I looked at magazines and I thought, oh, well, there's this kind of woman and there's that kind of woman. Mm-hmm. And I had this moment where I thought, wait a minute. I got, I got on the bus and I started making notes about, yeah. about the women I saw sitting on the bus around me. And, and that was a tremendous focusing engine. You're, you're saying exactly what uh, Joanna Russ said in her famous essay on the image yeah, of women in science fiction, right. that there, there are many images of women in science fiction, but there are hardly any women. 
Yeah, they're just, mm-hmm. and they're, they're such stereotypical I- images that they're, I mean, they're only like three. Yeah, you, you have so, three yeah. to pick from on the shelf, yeah, and then if exactly. you want to write characters, you can just make up men characters, but, yeah. because there are lots of men. I knew that was <laughs> what that, what that but, series was going to be about. Well, Pam, yeah, did you, start, did you start with the same kind of consciousness? No, I actually didn't, because I, I, when, when I started getting into science fiction, that was something I sort of, I sort of came into it obliquely, because I hadn't really gotten into science fiction until later. And I didn't really become aware of the entire community around science fiction until I was in college. And I guess you can thank George Zabrowski for that, because he basically was the one who introduced me to that aspect of mm-hmm. that there was actually this. Before that, all I knew was H.G. Wells, mm-hmm. Arthur C. Clarke, um, Alfred Bester, whom I had come upon purely by accident, E. Everett Evans, another guy I came upon purely by mm-hmm. accident, and watching a lot of Twilight Zone and the Outer Worlds yeah. on television, and that was that was my that was basically the sum total of my science fiction knowledge until I was almost twenty. So when I came into it, I it, I, I started writing stories that had science fictional elements, and I and I and I was sort of doing things I think more unconsciously. And if I felt like writing from the point of view of a female character, I just simply wrote from the point of view of a female character because I didn't have these images of types of female characters in uh, science fiction yeah. to draw on. I didn't have any of that. So I was just drawing on, well, I, the first published story I did was told from the point of view of a young college student, which which was you know t- totally appropriate for me because at the time I wrote it, I was a college student. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was the first story that I published. And... So I, I sort of came into it obliquely, and then, and it was, it was my good fortune that at the time I was starting to write science fiction, then it, suddenly you, you had Ursula, but you had Joanne mm-hmm. Russ, you had Fonda McIntyre, you know, you had all of these people coming in then at the same, and there was this ferment going on, and this cross-fertilization, I think, that otherwise might not have happened with, with at least some of us. I don't know what kind of writer I would have been otherwise without that. But you wanted you 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 knew you wanted to write fiction before you knew you wanted to write science fiction. I wanted to write fiction before, Uh but I had you know science fiction that was all that was almost by it was it was oblique. I Uh wouldn't say it was accidental. Certainly, I I sort of came into it not growing up saying I'm going to be a science fiction writer. Right. Although at the same time I was so I was so nervous about showing my writing to anybody that I didn't take any writing courses in college. Good. <laughs> I, I have no training in writing whatsoever. I've never been to a workshop. Really? I've never had a, I've, I've never had a, a, a creative writing course. But you've taught workshops, haven't you? I haven't even taught really? workshops. I mean, I've gone and I've talked to people about writing and various uh-huh. things. I've talked to kids about writing. I've talked to groups about writing. But no, I've never done a workshop. I I could probably figure out how to do one, but I've never had you know, I, 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 it, with me, it was just trial and error the whole way. I got a feeling that if you talk to a lot of women writers of that time, mm-hmm. you'll find that most of us did not have connections to the fan community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or before we got into the business, the business of, of writing science fiction and fantasy, I certainly didn't. I knew yeah. there were conventions somewhere, but I didn't yeah. really connect because. Women, you know, girls didn't really. We didn't talk about science fiction. With That's each other. true. Yeah, it was definitely a guy thing when we were yeah. growing up. I think you had to be an isolate, really, and you liked to do it. You liked to read science yeah. fiction because you were weird, and other yeah. girls didn't and, want and to talk the, about. Yeah, it. and but, it helped yeah. if you grew up in a city like New York, because yeah. which is where George grew up, which is why he knew about that right. community. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. there they were; they were all over the place. They were around City College. They were. 
you know, there was a whole community of them there with their conventions and everything. And I, m I imagine that was true of probably most of the major cities in the country. Well, I grew up in New York too, but I never connected with any of that. Yeah. And, and no, because, until I, because it was mostly a guy's boys. Yeah. Uh, and well, that was a big deal. Cause for how long in your writing career then was your interaction with science fiction purely on the page? Oh, pretty much until I published my first book. Yeah. It was mm -hmm. 1974. So, because um, I had started, <clears throat> I was a, I read adventure stories. I thought I was going to write uh, post-colonial um, um, thrillers. That's mm -hmm. what I thought my writing was going to be. And then I discovered that, no, it wasn't. So <laughs> I had to do something else. Well, I, I, I tried I, I, I'm wondering, though, when you say that you, neither one of you grew up thinking you would be a science fiction writer, I'm trying to think of any women who actually did grow up with that ambition. Lois Bujold, I think, was one because her dad, the, the, a lot of the women I've talked to had a father who read science fiction or something like that. But, mm -hmm. but in, 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 in the male world of science fiction, there's this kind of classic generational thing, which once was explained to me by uh, Aldous Budris and once by George R. R. Martin, because the first generation, which was obviously the, the, the generation of Clark and Asimov and Heinlein were people who, you know, realized they could sell magazines. But by the 1950s, AJ's generation, he said we were the first generation of people who knew we could be science fiction writers for a living. Because by the time they came of age in the early 50s, there was actually a book market, you could sell novels and yeah. that sort of thing. And then George Martin explained to me once that his group, which was once called the Labor Day group, that included him and Ed Bryant and, um, I can't remember everybody. We're the first generation of people who grew up knowing they could win a Hugo Award. Wow. Mm -hmm. Who came of age when there were Hugo Awards. So, yeah. but in each case, the, the, the generations that they're describing were all men. Yeah. They mm -hmm. could not include any, the, 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 the generation of, well, Judy Merrill maybe. Yeah. Uh, but. There were a few, but you know, when, when we came into things in the 70s, we had to break in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what yes. uh, the room of one's own was all about. We had to break in. There were yeah. barriers, and there were. I'll never forget the guy who showed up at the first room of one's own, saying, "You can't keep me out of here. This is our convention." Oh, and we threw him out <clears throat> because we said, "This is only for women to talk, so we won't have people like you coming in here <laughs> and talking over everybody and interrupting them all the time." So it was really it was the experience of being a kind of a. It was the Bastille to us. Because mm -hmm. we had yeah. to actually force our way into programming and force our way in to have being able to speak in a panel without being overridden immediately by some guy, mm -hmm. either up yeah. in front or down in the audience. Which happens now anyway. Yes! <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but I mean, how real in, well, when you both entered the field in, in the, you know, the mid-70s, how real did those barriers feel? It felt it didn't really feel that real until we started to actually claim time and territory in conventions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then later on we got to the point of yeah. saying, you know, the reviews don't notice us at all. We never get reviewed. That was a problem yeah. for a long mm -hmm. time. It's still a problem, but not as much as it was. But at, at, at first it was kind of an underground party. Yeah. I remember it was very convivial and we didn't feel combative at all. And yeah. then when we realized that people didn't want us up there talking, and yeah. people didn't mm -hmm. want to hear what we had to say. Then it became much more... If we had been the ladies' auxiliary, that probably would have been fine. Yeah. Well, we were for a little bit. But then yeah. we broke out of that because it was too constraining and we had things yeah. we wanted to say. So, well, and of course, by the time... By the time I, I remember this from the early 90s, and this was when I was, you know, actually 
being asked, you know, do you want to do an updated Women of Wonder show? Isn't it mm-hmm. to do a new Women of Wonder? And during the 80s, I would say, well, I think we settled that. And then about, it was around the late 80s, the early 90s, I began to realize, oh no, now what's happened is, we're not this little sideshow over here, and we're not trying to bust it over here. Now we are responsible for the decline of the field because we don't write real science fiction. We got to that point. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Is that where we <laughs> yes, are? Yes, uh, <laughs> according to some commentators in the field, you know, and that was what I said, well, maybe it is time to, to do some more books. And plus, a lot of writers had come in since I had done the first one mm-hmm. that I wanted to include in some way. So that was how the second ones came about, which actually that was an, an, an editor who had gone from vintage to hardcore, Anne Freegood, who was the one who mm-hmm. basically sort of behind the scenes talked me into it and sort of pushed for it. And even after she left hardcore, she was still sort of looking out for it. So, but, um, so that's how that one came about. So I was saying, okay. And that was when I realized, yes, you do have to do this thing over and over. It is never going to be a settled issue. And it still is not. It's although it's it's the situation is so different now from what it was. Well, well m- m- I think you're you're still actively writing, and I haven't seen a new book from you in a, in a while. No, I, <clears throat> I've been um, distracted. Yeah, my husband was uh, diagnosed <clears throat> with Alzheimer's in 2005, and <clears throat> that kind of turns off everything. And, and you don't do much writing, so yeah. um, I'm doing other kinds of writing, but not something for publication at this point. Yeah. Oh, you should mention your book about your father was terrific. I thought that was a good book. That was a good book. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good, it wasn't. I didn't see any science fiction in it anywhere. <laughs> it's very, very <laughs> yeah, deeply. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the reason I ask you is, I mean, you say it's different now since you're still writing science fiction in the field. Mm-hmm. How do you find it different? Well, I would say the number of subgenres, that's one thing. Yeah. The marketplace has entirely changed. The, um, the amount of online activity that writers seem to have to engage in, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, is going to, it, I, I, I finally accepted that that's going to be a lot easier for a younger writer who feels at home in that environment mm-hmm. than it is ever going to be for me. It seems like the first question every young writer gets from an editor now is, what are your platforms? What are your platforms? Oh. My God. Yeah. My stepdaughter just wrote a book. Oh. And I'm kind of plugging into what's going on now. She hired a publicist. Mm-hmm. And she wrote mm-hmm. a book that was released in California by a small publisher about uh, living with chronic illness. It's not a fiction book. Mm-hmm. And so she's telling me what they want her to do. And it, mm-hmm. it, it, hire a publicist, get yourself on TV, go and talk to people. In other words, do all the stuff page. the publishers used do to do all, for yeah, you. All <laughs> the stuff that do they used the to do. All the stuff that when I wanted yeah. to be a writer in the first place, I, one of the attractions was that I wouldn't have to do exactly. that. Exactly. Right. The publisher yeah. was going to do I that. I mean, you know, writers are people who, I mean, I, I don't want to generalize about <clears> everyone, but I would say generally speaking, you have to have a high tolerance for solitude, and you might tend to be more on the shy side. And you know, might not be the kind of person who, say, would want to go and, 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 and be a salesperson, say, as a, as a profession. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tough life. And, yeah, and having to do that. And, I mean, I, I, think you, I think there's always been, you've always had to do some of that. But now it seems like you have to do a lot of that. I will look at, say, little, little blurbs or paragraphs about newer writers, younger writers. You know, and just, just little paragraphs about what they're doing. And I'm amazed at the amount of stuff they feel they have to write. I was like, well, under such and such a name, she's writing blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And under this title, she's doing this and that. And she's also writing steampunk. I'm going, wait a minute. 
That sounds like it's about five or six books a year at least. Some people do these days. Some people do. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm hard pressed to, um, I mean, I'm just hard pressed to do a book in, in any reasonable amount of time. It just takes me longer. Well, there are some people who, I, I mean, they're, 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 we're talking about different kinds of writers, I suppose, in the sense yeah. of, you know, if, if, if every book is an organic thing mm-hmm. that you live with and so forth and so on, mm-hmm. and there are other writers, some of whom are, are fine and many of whom are here, who, whose attitude toward writing is, is purely craft. It's the attitude that you used to hear from the pulp writers, yep. who you mm-hmm. have to sell a million years, a million, a million words a year in order to even make a, a basic Any living. Anything yeah. you can get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and th- that market is still there. It's just not in not in the pulp magazines. Besides, so, um, the younger folks are all used to being in communication with each other all the time. <laughs> Most of us were sitting in our little cells working, and we didn't have this incredible network of, of people that we talked to mm-hmm. all the time electronically. And I think that that feeds into a more casual attitude to writing a story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think for people who started out reading by themselves and then writing by themselves, it's not so casual. Yeah. It was never casual. It was serious business yeah. because it was the thing you did that nobody else that you knew. Well, I think something Pam said a couple of minutes ago. It's, it sounds like a stereotype, but a lot of people become writers because they're comfortable being alone. They don't like to be out, and <laughs> and, and and yet now they're asked to do that all the time. They're asked to not yeah. you know, don't yeah. spend time in your garret writing. You be out on the on the web. And so are we sounding like? Speaking as the youngest person in the room, Jonathan, are we, are we sounding like really? <laughs> what I would ask you both is, and it sounds facile, but, but do we still need feminist science fiction? Oh, Lordy, we still need feminist everything. Yeah. Yes, more than ever. Well, let me, let me. I mean, I, I never thought I'd look to see the day, just to name one example, when Planned Parenthood, an organization that, yeah. was, that was so utterly respectable during my young childhood and adulthood, is now yeah. a target of, as this this terrible thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking at that. I, I I I'm just amazed. I'm just amazed. I'm the, stunned. The backlash has become um, massive, yeah. and pervasive, and pervasive all over. I think <coughs> we thought we were we were going to do it. Uh-huh. I mean, I remember thinking we were going to do yeah, it. Yeah, I thought at least yeah. certain yeah. things would be settled. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, that's other things that maybe never will be. But I, I thought at least there'd be certain things that any reasonable person would say, "Look, um, you know, this this really isn't anything to get into an argument over." That's all over. But I guess the other way of asking the question is, what does it mean to write feminist science fiction now? In what are we in the fourth wave now? I can't keep track of the Doesn't waves. Doesn't really matter because uh-huh. it always means the same thing. It means you're writing human beings who are female. Well, that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, and the rest of it is frou-frou. It's, it's but there was a sense. I mean, the my sense at the time was that the uh, the first couple of volumes of the whole Fast Chronicles scared some people. Oh, a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people were really scared. A lot of people like, told me I tried to read your book, but I got really I couldn't get through the first one. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I have to say, I was laughing my ass off writing that book. That book for me was um, it was a it was a satire. For, I mean, I was, must have been more naive than I thought I was at the time. I was writing a satire. I started it because um, I read an article somewhere about. Um, a uh, fire drill for a nuclear attack on Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and the only person who said, 
no, I'm going home to get my wife, was Chief, Just, Chief Justice Douglas. Mm. Ah. And I thought, oh, they've got this whole underground thing prepared. And then I went from there to this is the Nixon gang, mm-hmm. their descendants coming out after the mess they made. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like political satire. I just turned everything backwards and said, and they're, they're, they're all homosexual. And they were, oh. you know, and did the whole thing. Right. And then people said, oh! <laughs> but the worst thing was when I walked into a community college to give a talk about that book, and they mm-hmm. had read it. And <clears throat> I was starting to talk about it in my usual flippant manner, and, and a couple of the women put their hands up, and somebody said, that's my life. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, fuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nice middle-class white girl, you know? I yeah. mean, I had no idea that yeah. so much of this stuff was for real, and it still is, and that's why it doesn't change in terms yeah. of what you have to do. What still needs to be done over and over and over. Women's work. Yeah. Over yeah. and yeah. over and over because it never sticks. It's never taken seriously. When it is taken seriously, there's a backlash like a ton of bricks. Like what we're seeing now mm. with Planned Parenthood. Yeah, and this isn't the first backlash. I mean, there was Hell a backlash, no. there was a backlash during the 80s. Mm-hmm. Backlash during the, it, it always, it, it always seems to um, revive somehow. But then is this a wave coming into shore? Is it one of those things where, you, 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 you fight back, but slowly the overall kind of you know, mark is actually shifting. I, I so that overall to, things are getting better. Well, I, I, I used to think that was possible. I'm beginning to think that it might not be for reasons that are that may be beyond our control at this point. To, to, every time I think about just global climate change, just to name the, mm-hmm. the, big, the big thing that's looming over everything, yeah. I mean, things could get a lot worse. And when things get a lot worse, and if they get a lot worse really, really fast, I mean, women are not going to fare well. And I would say anybody who's in a certain economic or social position is not going to fare well, including a lot of guys. It's not Mm -hmm. just going to be women. It's going to be everybody who has no power and no means of controlling anything. Well, when property disappears, you turn around and make property out of somebody weaker than you are. Mm. And that's been our pattern as a species forever. So you know what women have become their property again. You're breeding stock again. Well, one of the, the things uh, get that bad. Yeah. It's about. interesting because I was, I just had to do a lecture on dystopian fiction not long ago, and one of the things that strikes me is nobody terribly is worried about 1984 because basically, you know, we've been living with that for decades. <laughs> but the one novel that really is frightening now is, is Octavia Butler's Parable of the Talents. Oh, yes. Because Parable of the Talents deals with a fundamentalist uh, regime in the United States sending people to Christian re-education camps and everything that happens in that novel is a serious proposal among American politicians right now. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, and, and yet the problem it seems to me with any kind of fiction that wants to change minds, is that the minute you say feminist science fiction, you're talking about feminist science fiction readers, which means that you're being read by people who basically agree with most of your positions to begin with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you get the, um, I don't know who I'd pick out, to, 20 years ago I would have said, how do you get Tom Clancy readers to read feminist <laughs> fiction? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, well, hang on. Probably not. say that. I don't know. But I don't completely disagree with you. I don't completely agree with you. Okay. <laughs> For once, he doesn't not, completely disagree. I don't agree. I'll tell you what. Okay. <laughs> Who is the best-selling women science fiction writer today? Probably <coughs> Lois Master Bujolk. Probably. Yeah. So, yeah. And she is published by a very traditional science fiction publisher in Bain, mm-hmm. who primarily publish adventure fiction, military science fiction, that kind of stuff. And what does she write about almost predominantly? Reproduction. 
family and reproduction. Yeah, I mean, that's what she writes about. And you never hear her spoken about, particularly as being a feminist science fiction writer. And I don't know, I've never spoken to her, whether she overtly feels that she is or is not. But certainly, a woman writing about reproduction and family issues to a large, predominantly male, conservative, military science fiction audience has to be a fairly positive thing in the structure of science fiction and feminist science fiction. I agree. That's a very yeah. positive thing. <clears throat> you know. That sounds good yeah. to me. And I'm not saying everybody should try to write, like, Lois no. Bourgeois. She's doing it. <laughs> she's, she's, well, she's, yeah, doing she's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's filled that niche. There's mm-hmm. probably, I mean, I would say maybe there's only room for one writer like that. <laughs> that could be. You know, in other words, the token. There's, there's always room for a token yeah. of almost any kind. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a group, then it might, you know, if you had a, suddenly had a whole group of women writing that way, and writing mm-hmm. very well and, and matching her, then, you know... But they're not to be falsely optimistic, because I'm not, I think. But uh, if you have a Tolkien, then you have a Terry Brooks. Mm. And you have a, you know, uh, David Eddings, and then you get to have a, who, you know, whomever, right? Robert Jordan. Yeah. So do we get to have a Lois Bujold and a Carolyn Cherry and whoever else, and then have an Elliot de Bodard or a Yoon Lee or whatever else, who may reach a large audience and speak to people, and and I mean, isn't that isn't that what you would hope for for yeah. feminist science fiction? Because having it, the the caricature of of feminist science fiction surely would be that it's not hard <coughs> SF, not real stuff, which is facile and stupid. It has a lot of biology in it, but not much engineering. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and then it's sort of like shrill and angry, right? Oh, right. Which mm-hmm. is offensive and stupid, and again reductive, and then ignores what's actually on the page, but. It seems to me that there, can, there is some re- reason for some degree of optimism when you have so many people wanting to address this. I've got a friend who's nothing, who, who is a feminist science fiction publisher. That's what she does. And she puts out books by an array of uh, you know, writers. They're read. We have bestsellers. It seems as though there is a an interest in beginning to unearth what Eleanor, I mean, we talked to Eleanor Arneson a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and what she's so angry about, which is this, erasing of the previous 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. But it seems at least there's some interest in correcting that. And that seems like a, like a good thing for us. I haven't heard much about it, but I'm glad to hear it from you. <laughs> <laughs> if it's actually but, uh, happening, but, uh, it's great. I, I think it's happening, but I... Uh, I'm, not slight, it's, I'm, slightly I'm not saying it's taken. I'm not saying it's taken, you know, it's like it's set. But it seems to be something that's, that's happening. So there's some ripples. Yeah. But it's, it, 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 it's still... Sort of uh, contained in a, in a niche. When you you mentioned you mentioned you use the word feminist science fiction. If you look at the comparable field like mysteries, where you've had strong women writers who are bestsellers, you've had the the Sue Graftons, the Sarah Peretskys, and so yeah. forth. We've had nobody thinks of them as feminist writers anymore. They're just the leading mystery writers. So and and there's no doubt that there are feminist themes in in the work of a lot of women mystery writers these days. But they don't even uh, the science fiction field doesn't seem to have reached that kind of parity that mysteries have. No, I don't think it has. But, but you know, what? we start as a genre, and then in our big box there are little boxes. Mm-hmm. And it, it's hard to break down the boxes when the boxes are the basis of our existence. We, we are not, <coughs> st- we're still a genre within 
what is commonly called mainstream literature. True. And we haven't been able to break that down, except a few individuals are able to crack out of it. So it's kind of built into the structure of the way people perceive well, what fiction is and how it's stacked up in the library shelves and how it's stacked right. up in the bookstore shelves. And you, it's very hard to get past that when the whole set of the culture right now, the, um, the dominant culture in general, is this big monster backlash and some people who were um, um, the liberals of the 60s and 70s and 80s um, trying to keep everything from being reversed, which is the way I see it. Well, yeah. So that's not a good time to break out of your genre, but there is no good time. Well, there is no good time. You're right. There are reasons you're in there Mm -hmm. for a start. I mean, I would say that one of the things I think has happened is that science fiction has got so large that it's atomized within its own boundaries, Mm -hmm. and it's big enough that the subgroups are kind of large enough to be able to talk to themselves and not to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And the issue is, does it now sort of, will a mechanism occur that will will have them to start talking to everybody else? Because that's when it really becomes kind of exciting, exciting and positive. Do you think there's a need to return to print a lot of the foundational feminist science fiction texts that aren't around and easily available anymore? That would be great, but who's mm-hmm. going to do it, and are they going to be able to make their money back? Yeah. There is so much competition now from so many different platforms mm-hmm. yes. <clears throat> that um, it's difficult to say. I mean, you know, you put it in the Gutenberg project, maybe, <clears throat> because <clears throat> until after we're dead, because uh, <laughs> I don't think you could sell the older work now because the new work is coming out so fast and there's so much of it. Yeah. That unless this, unless Americans and uh, specifically American readers. Mm-hmm. learn to look backward a little and value what they see behind them, the latest wave of, of whatever it is that publishers are pushing, mm. or the authors themselves are pushing as hard as they can, mm. um, I don't think there's any appetite for that. I mean, we're basically an ahistorical nation, an anti-historical nation. Mm-hmm. People didn't mm. come here the to United remember States, their yeah, past. The United yeah. States of amnesia. Absolutely. It's not a good place to try to get something to come back from before unless it's reactionary bullshit that somebody's pushing politically. So I, I, I'd love to see all those books back in print. Yeah. I and just I, and I, th- I think there's also a tendency to think that, and especially with science fiction, which can sometimes date so, so, so quickly, mm-hmm. is that people who are younger, and I can understand their feelings, you know, I, I try to distinguish, <laughs> you know, my feelings of are women being neglected or has this whole generation just suddenly disappeared from, from memory or something, with... Isn't this what happens when we all get old? You start thinking, well, you know, what's what's up with these young folks now? I mean, they're just, you know, well, they've got their own stuff going on. That's the first thing. They're mm-hmm. obviously going to be more involved with that. And when they look at the older works, they're going to notice things that, first of all, we didn't notice when we read this stuff. And second of all, if we read it now, we'll we'll, we'll see it through a nostalgic lens. And they'll look at it and say, Oh, Isaac Asimov, no female characters. And that'll <laughs> stick out like a sore thumb right away. In a right. way that back in, in, in my naive times, you know, picking yeah. him up for the first time, I, I, I didn't particularly even notice that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, that Susan so. Calvin was there, I suppose. And, 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 to, yes. and, and people of color. I mean, you know, yeah. you have science fiction books that are full of nothing, basically, except, you know, largely middle-class white folks, at least in the way they behave. Well, I mean, but that's uh, that's an easy game for anybody yeah. to play is to go back and look at any kind of literature from yeah, yeah. prior to 1970 to see how outrageous it was. The advantage of looking at some of the older things is a story which we've had a number of conversations about um, women in science fiction on the podcast. 
And now they talk about things like gender construction, which is a very mm-hmm. kind of postmodern intellectual thing. And if you go back and look at some of the stories in the light of some of these new theories, you look at a story like C.L. Moore's No Woman Born, mm-hmm. which is all about gender construction. It's all about what if you're in a mechanical body, do you have gender? Are you, are you a woman? Are you a machine? And all those questions are there in what, 1945? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes these older texts can illuminate the newer theories and the newer approaches in ways that nobody suspected at the time. I think if you go back and look at some of the, um, the, the, the pulp stories of Lee Brackett, there's a lot more complicated stuff going on with gender than it seemed like when we were reading them as kids. Well, that, mm-hmm. that's the job, I guess, of, of uh, academia, is to point that out to people who are interested in... Well, I guess well it's probably also yeah. the job of an anthologist, if you could actually get the anthology out there and get somebody to, to buy, buy it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to bring it out simply as, here's an anthology, you might find it illuminating, you know, not, and, and maybe not make it quite as academic. academic no, yeah, academia has a way of killing literature. Well, I wasn't going to put it that far, I know for a, for a lot of people it does. I wasn't a lit major either. <laughs> do you think it's possible to do a, uh, an anthology of science fiction by women and have it not be feminist, not be political? Oh, I think that... The, I, I can't even imagine what it would look like if you try. I don't even. I can't even conceive of how you would even start to do such a thing. I mean, unless <laughs> unless maybe you were editing a book for, um, you know, the Koch brothers or some. Well, that's a sign right there, isn't it? That's interesting. Yeah. That you would yeah. say, I wouldn't know how to begin, and I don't no. think anybody would say, oh well, I know right immediately who I would go to. For those but I mean, stories. it has some of that has to do with how you approach a story, because if you go back and look at stories by. Zena Henderson or, 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 or Margaret St. Clair or uh, people. Reading them now, you can see, okay, yeah, of course this fits in with a feminist way of looking at it. But when I was reading them as a kid, it, I, maybe I absorbed that, but I didn't think anything about the concept of feminism wasn't there. I thought, this is a good story. This is a school teacher who has, you know, weird telepathic kids. Uh, and they were all terrific stories. But you look at them now and you say, okay, well, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there about parenting, about teaching, about gender roles that maybe it didn't go past me when I was a kid, but maybe it got internalized because it was just part of the fabric of the story. Yeah. Well, certainly I mean, it strikes me. I mean, the reason I ask is because I know someone who's trying to do that. To do what? To, to edit an anthology of women's science fiction, but not feminist science fiction. Huh. And the first shallow <laughs> reaction I had to it was, hmm. I guess I think I know what you mean, that you're trying to ga- gather together science fiction that's not, I guess overtly, deliberately, clearly political. But then I thought, well, hang on, surely any time a woman writes science fiction, well, writes, that in itself is an inherently feminist act. I mean, you're expressing a woman's point of view, which is one of the major things about it. This seems really subjective. I mean... I mean, I don't want to sound literal-minded here, but the only way I can even think of approaching that would be this this editor would have to call every single one of those writers up, assuming they're all still alive, mm. maybe some of them are, or call somebody who knew them and say, okay, I have one question to ask you. Was this woman a feminist? <laughs> and, and, and if you get, oh, no, she was very traditional, blah, 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 or something like that. And, they, you know, that, and even then, and I would be wondering... <laughs> Yeah, somebody might say that, but maybe this was her act of rebellion writing this particular yeah. story. As far as she could yeah. go, right. Maybe and that was go. all she could do, but it sort of came out that way because it was the only way it could come out in this particular from this particular individual. Yeah. So I don't know. It just seems like a, a sort of half-assed project. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is? It's a political act. 
-hmm. And no matter how you do it, you're going to get so covered with thrown whatnots that nobody will be able to find you because Mm -hmm. people will say, that person doesn't belong in that collection. Yeah. Or, well, what about me? I wrote one like that. Well, that I knew that person, and mm. she would have hated this. I mean, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not your friend. <laughs> well, there, there were women writers who did not like to be labeled feminist for purely marketing reasons. Andre oh, yeah. Norton was one yeah. of them. Sure, but uh, they didn't necessarily write non-feminist. They weren't. No, no, they, they had nothing to do with fiction. It had to do with you know she she yeah. knew she was selling to boys, and she wanted to yeah. continue selling to boys because when mm-hmm. she started her career. If you were a boy caught reading a book by a woman, it was like reading women's fiction was like dressing in women's clothes. You know, some boys could do it, but by and large, you get in trouble if on the schoolyard. So, and, and she, as a matter of fact, she changed her name legally before she even started writing science fiction, apparently. Uh, because, for that purpose. For that purpose. Wow. Because she knew she wanted, she, she knew she had girl readers as well. Um, but she didn't want, an association, I know because she funded our Crawford Award, and I remember talking to her about this, she didn't want to be think, thought of as a feminist writer because she thought that would cut into her market. Feminist mm-hmm. means, to some, certain readers, means I don't have to read that. Uh, and if you look at mainstream fiction, that's very much the case. If you see a feminist novel, how many men read Erica Jong, how many men read uh, the, the, the Women's Room when it came out, Marilyn French. Uh, so, you can understand from a purely practical point of view why why a, a writer might want to avoid that label, yeah. just like uh, writers would want to avoid the labels of of writing uh, only black fiction or only gay fiction and so forth and so on. You don't want to turn off That's part that of your little sub drama problem again. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it's exactly. everywhere. Exactly, and yeah. everybody's trying to get get out. As but much the problem as they is, the subgenre is a way of telling you what not to read as much as yeah. it's a way of telling you what to read. I, you know. W- we, we talk about feminist science fiction as being a niche, but military science fiction is a niche. And there are a lot of people who won't read a book because they don't read military science fiction. Uh, and they could end up not reading The Forever War because of that. This becomes a real problem if you're the kind of writer as I unfortunately am, mm-hmm. who like to wander around and do different kinds of books. Mm-hmm. You know, a historical novel. I said, oh yes, I want to write a historical novel, so I did one of those. You know, I wanted to write an alternative history, so I did one of those. You know, I didn't, I, 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 I have a big, you know, great big idea stuff in the Venus books. I have a, but I, and, and I, I like the idea of being able to do a lot of different kinds of things. Well, that's the, that's absolutely the worst thing you can do as far as marketing goes. Because Mm -hmm. the only thing you have then is you have to hope that there are enough readers that will just say, well, I'm not sure what this book is going to be because mm. her last ones were so different, mm. but I'll take a chance. But I trust the writer. And that's yeah. a much harder sell. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. My problem, too. Yeah. <clears throat> Which is what you, which is, so, so, here, so here what I came out with. This is the newest one. Oh. It's a contemporary fantasy kind of thing. This, this, is, season, this, this is the new novel, Season of the Cats. Season of the Cats. Yeah, that's it. I, that, was, I, actually, this is the first time I saw it. I went to oh, really? the dealer's room. And got, got well, I think I I Lots of cats. I, I thought I should say Cra- that because the people on the podcast can't see it. Oh, oh they, we're not. I'm, lo- I'm looking at it, and there are lots of cats on the cover. Yeah, so lots of cats, <laughs> and, yeah, including one tuxedo cat who's uh-huh. the centerpiece of the cover. So I should say that. But, I mean, this is a... So Susie, how many people think? How many people know of you as a vampire writer? Period. Lots and lots and lots and lots, and that's mm. what they know. And mm. and frankly, part of that is because um, I'm a little cautious about who I recommend the, the whole Fast Chronicles to, mm-hmm. because those are very tough books, 
And there are a lot of people who get really upset now by those books. So um, I'll say, you know, there's some other stuff, but it's it's feminist radical work. Well, it's feminist radical work, but I've talked to people who get upset, who like the first couple, and then they got really upset at The Conqueror's Child because it turns out the women... Aren't that nice in the end? <laughs> Actually, it was the Furies, I think. It was, oh, the Furies. The yeah, Furies is the one. And they never yeah. got to the Congress. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, but the Furies is where it turned. Yeah, the Furies. The Furies is the book I didn't want to write because I mm-hmm. knew I didn't want to write it, and nobody was going to want to read it mm-hmm. because it's about a war. It's about a real mm-hmm. war between men and women, and it's savage because mm-hmm. we are savages when it comes to that level. And. Um, but I wrote it because I had to, because I couldn't skip over it and still call myself a writer because it was the crux of changing things. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote it, and it pretty much killed the, that series for me, I think. It yeah. killed it because uh, it's, too, it's too hard to read. That book was hard to write. The mm-hmm. first book was fun to write. Yeah. The second book was fascinating to write. The third book was harder than But you had to, to do write. it because that was one and of the, the first fourth, two books. Yes, yeah. and the fourth book was My Reward, which unfortunately most readers have never gotten to. So well, there I was had a the long, reward, but they don't. Yeah, there was a long lapse there yes, too. There That's the other problem. I wasn't so. quite. I, I was originally going to make it a trilogy, so there was going to be the war and then yeah. up the pieces. Mm-hmm. But it was clear the war needed a book, and then mm-hmm. gave the war the book, and it was probably the worst decision in my life. And I'm very proud I made it. <laughs> so you're you're still looking back over the years, satisfied with the series? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, I'm particularly satisfied. Because in the fourth book, which nobody has read, <laughs> The Conqueror's Child, all of a sudden a little piece of fantasy walked into that story. <laughs> and that piece of fantasy was what let me get going with that book. And that's the guy who's a shaman. Oh, right. Yeah, and he right. does have powers, obviously. Yeah. He's got some kind of powers. And I, it was the last thing in the world I would ever have intended. It was not a fantasy series by any means, except that, you know, mm-hmm. the conditions were yeah, fantastic. Yeah. But <clears throat> that little piece of fantastic something got in there and gave that book the heart that, that mm-hmm. I'm very proud of. But nobody sees it because they can't get past the Furies. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. tell them to read the whole thing backwards. <laughs> what a wonderful way to tell them to say it to the start, start with the Conqueror's Child, start. folks. Work your way back to the Furies, and, and then there'll be a happy ending back at the beginning. <laughs> sort of. It, right. it yeah. may confuse you, you know. <laughs> right. Just, and how about you, when you look back at shore, the Shore of Women and the, the Venus books, are you satisfied with those? I guess I am. I mean, I, I with the Venus books, and this this happened sort of inadvertently. Is I, since then I have written a few stories against that background. They're they, they're not things that I cut out of the novel at all. Mm-hmm. They're things I wrote after I had finished all of that. But they're they're just sort of little side missions. Say, well, I can write a story about this. Well, I can write a story mm-hmm. about that. I wrote this one story, Venus Flowers, at night which was kind of an eerie story to write because the background of uh, the background that I had in the Venus books was a, was a was a world that was largely it was basically dominated by Islam. And when I was writing this when I was writing that story it was well it was, yeah it was, I started writing it in early 2001. And I got I made I had a couple of false starts on it and then I I was working, I, my character was actually in New York Harbor on the morning of September 11th. My Muslim character. Yeah. And 
that what that day that that sort of blew that story for me for the next couple of months. I couldn't even go near it. Mm. It's just so weird because it was it, it, I was I was beginning to get that feeling of premonitions or something. From that. Mm. It was very very weird. But then I went back to it. Of course, then I had to incorporate those events into the background of the story. So that was another complication. But that was so I have so I have gone back to it, but would I? But I and and I I have a a, a, sh, a very small collection of those stories that's out, you know that were that I basically drew from the background, used some of the characters and whatever. Yeah. But um, I don't think I'll I don't think I'll write anymore. I think I pretty much got to where I had to go with that. Yeah. And the shore of women, I think maybe one of my favorite remarks about that was I this was years ago. And um, a man came up and asked me to sign his copy, mm-hmm. and he said, I just want to thank you for not making me feel bad about being a dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I said, well you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you're a good dude, right? <laughs> yeah. But, okay, that remark is exactly what I was saying earlier about why some men stay away from things that yeah. they, yeah. They, 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 there's a fear they're going to be attacked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I'm also curious, I mean, we're getting towards the end of, well, a little bit towards the end of our, do you still find science fiction engaging and useful? Do you read it? Are you still interested in writing it? I, know I do, well, I actually do read a fair amount of it. One, one, of, the, one of the reasons being is because I'm on the um, John W. Campbell Award jury. Mm. So I get to read a lot of it. And I actually thought that 2015 was a great year for some or some stuff, but there again, it's it's very diverse. It's yeah. all so different, and basically, what what we try to do with that particular award, I, I, it's not a policy, but I think it's something that all of the jurors tend to do. Is they try to concentrate more on science fiction as opposed to subgenres that are much yeah. more distantly related to it. In other words, like you know, you want to sort of like concentrate on the the so-called real science fiction, if there is such a thing anymore. And even there, there's such a variety of stuff. Now, Claire North was the was the one who won it this year for mm-hmm. um, the Fifteen Lives of Harry August, which is a very very strange book, and very very um, inventive, I thought. Mm-hmm. And let me see, Emily St. John Mandel, Station Eleven, mm-hmm. that was a good book. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Vandermeer's Area X um, books, mm-hmm. but and they're all completely different. Mm. And but they're t- all recognizably, I would say, I would contend that they're all recognizably science fiction to some degree. Yeah. There are some other fine books that I would look at and say that that's really you, you'd have to stretch it a bit to call it science fiction. Yeah. Although when you mention Claire Corbett and Emily St. John Mandel, they basically come from outside the science yes, fiction community. Yeah. Uh, which is some people see it as a threat, and some people see it as a very good sign that you have mainstream writers that are writing. It's yeah, there's they're living in a, they're living in Philip K. Dick's world, so it's not surprising that you'd be having people mm-hmm. coming in from from outside. I don't read much science fiction these days. Um, I'm I'm more interested in kind of supernatural fantasy kinds of things. Well, you when you mention because one of the things I would think it's confusing if you're trying to find pure science fiction these days. Is the kind of thing exactly that you said happened at the end of the Conqueror's Child when fantasy started slipping into it? Because now it's very, there are so many books that involve combinations of science fiction and fantasy and horror and uh, and, and cross cultural contamination, if you will. There's well, there's your 
Phantom of the Opera story, which is, is that a mystery story? Is that a romance? Is that a fantasy? Is it a horror story? You is tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I'm interested in as well, that circulates around this, is we've been talking a lot about feminist science fiction. Is there as much of a, an idea as a, of a feminist form of fantasy? Well... <laughs> Hmm. Anything but romance. Well, <laughs> Although romance I, can be feminist too. Yeah. Part yeah. of the reason I ask, I mean, I, I think of one or two books and that, that series, some things that Marriage of a Bradley did mm-hmm. and stuff like Mr. Babylon and whatever else. Uh, but we're about to have a, go on a panel on Saturday to talk about canonical fantasy. Yeah. And if you talk to a lot of people about canonical fantasy and they have 20 texts, they are always overwhelmingly the same group of gentlemen. Uh, with one or two small exceptions. And there's not that same sense of, you know, there's not women of fantasy wonder, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, you know, you can sit there and go, well, hang on a minute, wait a second, wait a second. There's Catherine Kurtz. Carolyn Cherry was writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, uh, and McCaffrey actually did write some fantasy. There mm-hmm. were an array of writers acro- across the years, mm-hmm. but we don't seem to have that conversation as much, which mm-hmm. is puzzling to me. Uh, it seems to me more that we've seen science fiction as being something, and my friend Elisa Krasnerstein is writing a PhD on this, as, as a political tool. Science fiction is, is the tool that you can use to change the world, so we'll use it. Fantasy isn't. I'm not sure that's confined to feminism. I mean, science no. fiction is a is an operational kind of narrative. It talks about how the society we are in might change or might evolve, how we might change and evolve. Fantasy isn't operating by those constraints. So by and large, political fantasy, apart from the issue of feminism, I think political fantasy is much more rare than political science fiction yeah. of any sort. No, I'd agree with that. I, I don't think fantasy is politicized in the same way in fiction as, as it is in science fiction, where it's very often integral to what's yeah. happening. Yeah. Well, we were talking basic about, to it. Um, no, I was talking to... I, 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 maybe it was you, maybe it was talking to Quinn, I don't know. <laughs> about uh, one of the things you have to worry about in science fiction is how the economy works. That is, people have jobs, there has to be... Fantasy, how many fantasies don't have any economy in them at all? Most. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where did the food come from? You know, who makes these clothes? How, how, how are these hobbits who are subsistence farmers having these gigantic feasts with catered by well, somebody. The, the, why know, is everybody only riding one horse and they're traveling to <laughs> the Exactly right. Yeah, right. <laughs> but then part of the reason I think about it is if you want to talk to people, you know, right now Game of Thrones, everybody follows Game of Thrones. You chat to the, you know, the, the woman working behind the bar and, and she's shaking because she might be George Martin at the convention. You know, uh, and you ask yourself, well, hang on a minute. Isn't that the pl- a platform you want to talk on? I mean, really? And if you think about it, isn't there material there to be explored. Oh, there is, there is, but it's not usually about wars yeah. and mm-hmm. exciting action. I mean, uh, uh, actually, not. Um, I can think of one. Huh. Joe Walton's Life Load. That's true. Uh, well, for yeah. that matter, you can pretty much work out the economy in the Song of Ice and Fire books too. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, yeah but I mean, it's it's famous, because he's just borrowing it from you know the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, largely, yeah so. it's yeah. not that difficult. It's, 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 if you have a medieval <laughs> world, the economy sort of sorts itself out. Well, but, it's, um, uh, but I mean, who who capitalized 
Sauron. Where, where's the funding for that coming from? Uh, this, is, this is an expensive process. You're uprooting whole forests. You know. Turning elves in, it's turning, in, Yeah, I mean, come on. There's, there are energy costs involved with this. Oh, no kidding. Wow. They burned out all the forests on Earth right, yeah. to fire those furnaces in Mordor. No, I'm thinking, oh, whose book am I thinking of? Come on. It's not Kelly. It's, uh, it's the one about St. Hilda. Hilda. Hilt, yeah, which is... Oh, Nicola Griffith. Yeah. Nicola oh, Griffith, yeah. Not, well, it's fantasy because she made it up. But, but, not, but, not but it doesn't historical. read like fantasy. It reads no. like a historical it, novel. Yeah, it yeah. reads like a very good Well, I mean, it's uh, it's something we talked in, and Stan Robinson was worried about this when he was writing Shaman. Mm-hmm. If you go far enough back in history and have little enough evidence, you're essentially world... We had Nicola on the podcast. She said, you have to have the skills of a science fiction writer to extrapolate that yeah. world from what little is actually known about it. Yeah. To do it realistically. To do it realistically. Yeah, you can make anything. Robert E. Howard, you know, I mean, (laughs) just make it all up. I don't think there is that. that You're right. And this keeps coming up because uh, I remember there was a a panel at FantasyCon years and years ago where uh, the guys up front were were naming, exactly doing what you were doing, naming all of the canonical fantasy writers, and they didn't name one woman, and that still happens. Mm. And I think part of it is it ties right back into what you were saying about losing that mid-list because a lot of women who wrote fantasy disappeared. Mm. Well, the only exception is if you say to them, okay, name the fantasy canon including... Children's literature. Ah. Ah. Mm-hmm. And something, oh, I've got to add to what Dinah Wynne Jones and Joanna, yeah. Yeah. Joanna Aiken, and, or Joanna Aiken and uh, Susan Cooper and so on and so forth. Yeah. And something's like, oh, we've got a whole plethora of these people yes. writing interesting complex fiction. That's true. That is for, for, for children. The other thing which we've talked about is if you ask a canon of, of writers rather than a canon of works, you can get a lot of women. I mean, most people now, if you're talking about canonical fantasy writers right now, most people would include Pat McKillop. And Robin McKinley. And Robin McKinley. If you ask for a list of ten books, I'm not sure that a Pat McKillop or a Robin Dear, McKinley book would show them. It's the same principle you were talking about, Ursula, uh, getting mm. Ursula Le Guin and Stephen King get uh, the National Book Council medal. But do they get National Book Awards for their adult fiction? Um, so by and large, it's easier to recognize authors sometimes when you're talking yeah. about canon than it is to recognize individual books. Yeah, that's true. But it remains a problem. And I'm, I'm, I think part of that that mid-list problem has extinguished a lot of memory of, of uh, yeah. fantasy work in the 70s and 80s uh, by women. I'm thinking of um, Evangeline Walton, for example. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. books were a big deal, and now they've disappeared. Yeah. And the same goes, somebody did the same thing, or similar thing for um, uh, Mayan and Aztec uh, mythology. And I, I, I've lost her name, which is very embarrassing. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think she only wrote one or two books yeah. in a series. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of people started something, yeah. and they wrote a book, and they didn't Well, something it. like Hope Marlies, who again yeah. came from outside the field, but Lud in the Mist, yeah. Yeah. is alive now. At a funny, I, I finally thought of the answer. It's alive now because of Neil Gaiman. Ah. Uh, Hope Marlies. Lud in the Mist. Uh, yeah, or, well. yeah, or Michael Swanwick, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I can think of women writers from the 80s who are not widely talked about now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you know, sometimes you wonder, well, why don't we talk about R.A. McAvoy? Or C.S. Friedman? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I mean, you're talking about eventually well, more. There's a whole well, array. One, but one reason is because if, if a writer hasn't written anything for a while, or they basically have retired or whatever, and the thing is, I always figure, why why have they disappeared? My first, my, my, I always assume it might very well have been mm-hmm. something totally beyond the writer's control. Sure. In other oh, yeah. words, the book, the, and, and that maybe the books even exist, 
It's just nobody wants to bring them out. Yeah. It is really hard to interest anybody mm-hmm. in anything now that isn't seen as immediately commercial, which means, and I, I think it was Charlie Strauss that said this recently. If, if, if it, I, I'm pretty sure it was Charlie Strauss. That um, they're not buying books, they're buying careers. They're not buying books, they're buying uh, maybe a series. Or, or franchises. Yeah, yes. Or franchise franchises or something. So basically what the right. publisher is interested in is, okay, how many books is this writer going to produce? Are they going to be the kind of thing that, you know, we can keep selling over time and, you know, will be good backlist items and whatever? Is this a person we can send out on tour? Are they going to be able to put on a good show? There are all these mm-hmm. other considerations that are coming in. You know, I mean, I've heard stories about writers that were told to, to lose 50 pounds before they went on tour. Oh, dear. I've, 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 mm-hmm. I've, Actually, heard things of, gee, you know, if if they expect me to be to make a personal appearance, maybe I better invest in some plastic surgery, you know, it's that kind of a thing. These were things that I thought, as a writer, you never really had to worry about. Yeah, sure. And I am hearing that, yeah, you've got to worry about them now. Do you there, there was a there was a, certain New, things? there was a New Yorker cartoon probably twenty years ago now where a Tweedy guy with a bald head and a mustache is in the publisher's office, and the publisher is saying, Miss Jones here will be your copy editor, and Zeke here will be posing for your cover photograph. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Do you think that um, the female man, Walk to the End of the World, uh, Shore of Women, would get published today? I don't know. That's a good question. That's a very good question, and my answer is I honestly don't know. I am mystified by what gets published and what doesn't get published because the process is so weird. And it has nothing to do with the quality of the work, usually, mm. which, is, mm. which isn't to say that everything that's published is bad, because obviously that's not true either. But there are a lot of books that you can have somebody who says, this is a wonderful book, and the editor will say, this is wonderful. I'd love to do something with this, but they can't get the publisher behind it. They can't get the sales department mm-hmm. behind it. They can't get the rest of the editorial staff behind it. They get, they, and and, and they, they just can't put the money behind it. And I hear this over and over again from, from, from writers I know. You know you, the letter or the email or the agent's remark will be, this is a great book. But we can't do it. Mm-hmm. This is a wonderful book, but we can't do it. This may be a masterpiece, but we can't do it. Meaning we can't get it past marketing. They can't get it past, mm-hmm. and 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 that's especially true if it's an individual book, and it's just you know that you know an individual yeah. book that maybe is not going to be a franchise, or the writer is not going to be somebody they can turn into a franchise mm-hmm. very easily. And you're certainly not going to get a situation that you might have in the 30s, 40s, 50s where Someone writes the whole. You know, they basically carry someone for three, four books before they write mm. the major book of their career. Yeah, I think now they might carry you for a couple of books, and then after that, yeah, yeah. Forget it. Well, the number of people who've had to go under pseudonyms to try to reboot their careers is yeah. probably at an all-time high. Yeah. And how many of those folks? And usually doesn't work. It usually yeah. doesn't work. No, yeah. they can't get published, <laughs> or nobody yeah. notices their their new offshoot book, whatever it is. It's it's really a, a a huge shift in in what is being looked for, how it's being marketed, mm-hmm. and um, it's a, it's a way of phasing out older writers, which I think is um, 
been pretty tough to fight unless you have already secured yourself a position yeah. mm. uh, on the heights where you're so visible yeah. that it doesn't matter what you do. And that doesn't happen to too many people inside of the genre. Certainly my feeling is that for an older writer now, it's, I mean, if, if you're fortunate enough to have scaled the commercial heights, then <clears> you can <throat> be secure. But either that or you need that lodestone. It's like, you know, Fritz Leiber will continue in the history of our genre because of Lankmar. And Howard, because of Conan, otherwise it would just be washed away by time. Mm. And it just, that's what drags them back, you know. And if you don't have that, then, you know, just the fact, the fact that, you know, sort of McAvoy wrote Tea with the Black Dragon, which is a delightful, charming mm. novel. Yes. But, you know, I think it's barely in print. Not spoken of particularly. I know she is available electronically. I'm pretty sure that Open Road Media yeah. has. I think has they've done that. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the specific problems with that novel, which I loved also, is that it's now. I talked to somebody fairly young. It's amusing because of the antiquated computer technology in the book. I mean, it's, 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 it, was, it was part of the part of it was Oriental magic, but part of it was cutting edge 1984 computer. But, but, and the same happens with Varley's press entry. Well, yeah, exactly. Actually, what happens, though, if you're lucky, is your story or your book goes from being prescient to dated to period. Now it's a historical <laughs> novel, yeah. You can yeah. now write historical yeah. novels about the <laughs> early <laughs> days of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Our lives are historical now. When I went to the Smithsonian and saw that my first K-Pro computer is there in the Smithsonian, <laughs> mm. <laughs> this is... <laughs> this is ridiculous. But, I mean, no, it's, it's funny, though. Somebody asked me recently in a class I was addressing on, on the subject of writing, and they said, how would you like to be remembered? And the first words out of my mouth were, why should I be remembered? And I realized... The torrent of stuff being produced is so huge mm -hmm. that if you don't latch onto the speedy track right away, you're done. Mm -hmm. It'll disappear. And it's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just one little culture in the history well, of there's, the world. Well, there's, there's, one, there's one piece of consolation I never give aspiring writers anymore. It used to be almost a cliche, as I would say. You know, don't worry. You know, don't worry if you start out later. You know, because you know, some a lot of writers. You know, it's better. If you, you know, maybe they're just not ready to write anything really in their twenties mm -hmm. or even in their thirties. But you know, writing is the kind of thing. It's not like athletics. You can do it when you're older, and you can do just as well. I don't think I could say that because mm, it is like athletics. Because <laughs> it is like athletics, and you do have to be somebody who can turn out, mm -hmm. you know, six books a year and, and and become a brand and be able to go on, you know, exhausting tours if necessary at the drop of a hat. So yeah, I couldn't yeah. give that advice now. Yeah. Well, look, we're over our hour. It has been a wonderful, fascinating <laughs> conversation, and a delight to have you here with us. But we should probably let you get on with your afternoons. We should end on a higher note than saying everything is doomed. <laughs> and, and, and you have to be a linebacker to be a published author. I mean, no, well that, yes, that, and that, that's certainly not true. I mean, there's always going to be somebody who's going to defy the rules and get away. Yeah. Yeah, but not too many. But somebody. not too many, unfortunately. <laughs> we, and, we, and, and of course, the hope of everybody who aspires to being a writer is you think you're going to be that person. Yeah. Or otherwise, mm -hmm. you would never go into such a profession. But uh, we started out talking about the possible canon of, of feminist science fiction and women of science fiction. So whatever else happens, we're, our two guests are in it. You guys are there. You have prominence. <laughs> so, you know, you're in, whether it pays you any money or not, you're in the damn canon. Yeah. But, and there's more being published tomorrow Absolutely. and next week and next year. And no one's shutting up. 
That's true. And that's got to be a big That's true. Thing. That's, that's absolutely true. Everybody's talking. Well, yes, a lot of problem. Right, that is. Not too many people are listening. <laughs> thank you both for being here. Well, that possibly that was... positive note, thank you very much. <laughs> Season of the Cat by Pamela Sargent is out now. <laughs> and certainly we exhort you to go and read certainly the final book in... Yeah. In the whole fast. In the whole fast chronicles, which is the Conqueror's Child. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And until next time, Gary. Next time we will be uh, the Food Street Podcast. Yay. <laughs>